Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Metadata. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 134 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we talked about the humble and very important to-do list and how technology might help you tame your task list. In this episode, we want to discuss a long-awaited trend that seems to finally be arriving and how you might get prepared for it. Tom, what's on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we'll be talking about the growing use of video conference calls and video chats and what you can do to be ready for your close-up when you next appear on video. In our second segment, we'll discuss the current state of portable computing and whether touchscreens and combo laptops might make sense for you when it's time to replace your current laptop. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first, let's get started on our main topic, and that's uh, video conferencing, video calls. Dennis, you and I actually have been talking about, I was thinking about it preparing for this podcast, we've been talking about video conferencing for at least six years, because I know we talked about it in our Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools, and and we were mentioning how we thought that video conferencing might really start to take off, given the economy, given that it would be make more sense to to, to have video calls than travel around the country just for an hour-long meeting, things like that. I think meeting by video has moved along in fits and starts, frankly. We've recently used it in our ABA book publishing group. Um, I've started using it for our meetings. Dennis, surely it wasn't just me starting to use this for board meetings that got you interested in the topic. Was there was there something more? Well, I've sort of noticed a, a trend recently, and I've, I've been doing a bit more video conferencing at work, uh, you know, f- even with people outside the U.S. Um, and I also noticed uh, with my nieces and nephews and my daughters that there's a tendency f- of them to use uh, FaceTime on their iPhones and iPads to, to communicate. So I see a lot more uh, just in the way that, that people are are using uh, video, and I see it to some extent for regular conference calls, but more sort of in the, the sort of HR interviewing area, some other things where it doesn't make sense to do travel, but you still want to see people and have that in-person feel. And I also uh, have had the occasion to use the sort of the big deal video conferencing, which is the sort of telepresence notion where you have the big high definition monitors and you really have the sense that you're in the same room with people in a different location using video. So I think a lot of those things have come together. Um, and then I think we've be- become both more accustomed to it, and there are some fairly simple uh, tools out there. So I think that's what's starting to happen, and probably not as fast as we might have thought in 2008, uh, just where it seemed like the uh, the cost savings would drive it. But but I, it seems like people are more used to it, and you see it a lot more often these days. 
Well, and I, I agree. I think that um, just like you, I have been seeing people use things like FaceTime, things like Skype uh, to, to do more personal calls uh, than, than I have really in the past. I know that when I traveled last year in, uh, in Europe and Asia and I was gone for a while, it made more sense for me. And frankly, it was cheaper to actually get onto my hotel Wi-Fi and do a video call and talk to somebody and get to see their face. Uh, than to actually use my phone. And given that, uh, I, I hate to say younger generations, but uh, given that uh, there are those who are using our cell phones and smartphones less and less for uh, actual work talking on the phone, um, it, it kind of makes sense that they're using their mobile devices to, to, uh, to have video calls and, and video meetings. I, I think that, um, you know, from my standpoint, the big firms, the big companies have kind of been marching along uh, to, in a, in a, I think, rather logical progression uh, towards uh, more sophisticated video conferencing, um, the, the type of telepresence that you talk about for, for the bigger companies and the bigger firms, um, just right down to uh, more established use of video. I think where you see it probably being used less, and less than that are in your medium-sized firms firms, your smaller firms, lawyers using it. Uh, it. They might be using it personally, but may not be using it as much or as often for work as they might be using it for personal reasons. You think that might be the case? Yeah, and, and I think that it's taken a while for sort of the the audience, or you know, say the clients and the lawyers to kind of get on the, the same same platforms and at the same level. So, but I think you can start to see things where you say, "Hey, this could make sense." Uh, say in the elder law area where you have clients who can't travel or can't get around, but you still want to have that sort of in-person type meeting. And I think you know, you you did remind me, Tom, that when we wrote the book, we had a number of examples where you could see that lawyers could use this to give a, a more personal feel to things. But it's one of those things where you. Feel felt you needed to have the common platform, the common tool to use. And, and that could be where, you know, FaceTime, maybe Skype have come come in and people are more used to it and communicating with family and uh, especially in the family setting. And that has, has moved over to the professional side. I mean, I guess, Tom, it might be interesting to tell people why you decided you know, for ABA board meetings that it, it made sense to, to try video conferencing. Well, I mean, the the basic reason is is that our meetings are long. Um, we have we we typically will meet um, in person for a full day, uh, and that's a, a long time to be on the phone without seeing somebody's face. And frankly, when we do it on the phone, our meetings are shorter. They aren't the full day, but they are still much longer than your average call. And I I, I thought that being able to look at people and see people's responses and reactions and how they were, you know, how they would respond. On to uh, ideas that other people had or arguments for or against whether we we're going to publish a book. Um, it's just a lot better. And I thought it was just a better experience than uh, being on the phone. I, I know that that there's a, a, a podcast going around sort of about the uh, the telephone conference call in real life. And they, they go through all of the major things that, that kind of can go wrong with people joining and leaving and joining and leaving. And, and you can't hear people 
people because they're on mute. And, and there are a lot of problems with the telephone call that you just don't see as much with the video call. Now, video conferences, I think, have their own special, unique challenges. And, and obviously, I don't want to paint this, them as being absolutely simple and, and dead easy to use. But there are a lot of um, awkward issues and, and problems that you avoid because you can actually see the person who's talking rather than just listening and under, not understanding what facial expressions are like or when people are pausing or anything like that. Those are, those are the main reasons why I decided to use those tools. Well, and I think, Tom, it's, and this will happen, especially as you get larger groups of people, is that we, when we would have the phone call meeting, sometimes we were saying, who was the person who said this, you know? And so when you have people whose, whose voices are similar, um, then video, video can make a big difference. I mean, I guess what I've noticed, or what it, what it sort of seems to me is that technologically, it doesn't seem that hard to do this anymore with some of these basic tools. And I guess uh, probably one of the big thing is, is going to be whether there are, uh, somebody may have either policy, security, uh, or firewall issues, so whether they can even do it, or you might only have one system that doesn't doesn't mesh up, so that seems to be the the main technology issue. I mean, I think otherwise people are, uh, you know, have uh, you know decent enough broadband, and if you use the common tools, uh, a lot of you know a lot of people have webcams or can use a, a phone. I mean. Is that your sense as well, Tom? I, you might also talk about how you chose the tool you're using for meetings. Well, and, and I think you're right that um, that the tools that have started to come out these days really are a lot easier to use, a lot more cost-effective. You know, a couple of years ago, if I was going to choose a tool to have a conference call by video with, uh, my choices would be limited. Uh, Skype only allows you to, to bring in multiple pieces, people by video if, if you pay for a, a business account. Um, the, um, the, you know, GoToMeeting and, and WebEx allow you to have video conferencing too, but those aren't cheap uh, subscriptions to have either. And the past couple of years have seen, I think, some interesting new companies kind of offer things. I mean, the the one that that came to mind first and something that you and I have been trying to take advantage of but really haven't quite gotten to yet is the simple Google Hangout. I mean, Google Hangouts will let, uh, let I think, what, 10 to 15 people uh, all see each other on camera, and then many more people can actually join in and watch those people join. Um, I, I tend to think that Google Hangouts um, uh, technology is a little more basic than I would want it to be in a, in a conference calling service. It's, you know, it's, it's just a hangout. They don't really, they're, they're not even promoting it as a, as a, in a professional way, so it probably, it wasn't the first thing that I thought about, um, and and I actually uh, had gotten a suggestion from one of the others on the pub board uh, to try out a tool called Zoom.us, and uh, the the main reason for that is is that one you can uh, have up to twenty five people on a video call, and two uh, to to. to to have an unlimited length of call for those 25 people costs $9.99 a month. So for 10 bucks a month, um, you can have unlimited video calls anytime you want. There's actually a free account um, where you can still get 25 people on a call, but you're limited to about a 40-minute call at any one time. And I didn't want to do that. I, 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 I'm happy to have uh, the, that $10 a month 
feature, and and frankly, they've just in the past week come out with with a new set of services that uh, and new features that really kind of I think um, they're stepping up their game against some of these more expensive tools. You you've got uh, chat, obviously. You can screen share, so I could share. I I did it during one of the meetings where I shared my screen with everybody, and they could see what I was doing. Um, you can do group messaging or individual messaging. You can now screen share um, an iOS device so I could share my iPad or my iPhone or my Android phone with people who are watching it. Obviously, people who are uh, who, who use the service can access it with an iPhone or an iPad or an Android device. And I think that's one of the things that makes a service like this useful is that it's multi-platform. And so if there are uh, companies that have policies against it, then you can log in on a mobile device or you can um, you can access it with a web browser. So the, you know there there will still be places that that won't allow it, but I think those will be fewer um, than you might see with with other services. They actually have also introduced something called Zoom Presence, which can run to conference rooms with 100 video participants and up to 1,000 viewers. And I know that the service that I have now lets you do kind of a webinar uh, style, with which, which allows you to have up to 25 panelists and up to 1,000 viewers. So it's really, I think, getting to be a much more impressive service. And I will say that um, for a $9.99 a month service, the video quality really is quite good. I've, I found that it was, it was a great service, and I, I think it's worth trying. I think you can get a free trial to, to, to give it out. Obviously, you can get a free a free account for a 40-minute call. It's it's definitely worth looking at if you are looking at a different kind of uh, conference service. So it sounds like cost has gone away as an issue. The technology is there. We certainly have some needs for it, so, and probably at least generationally, there's, there's, there's certainly generations who are used to using this, and, and, and I don't just mean younger. I think that uh, the uh, what I'll call the grandparent generation also is, is becoming more familiar with using these video tools. So the big issues to me seem to be cultural. You know, this isn't something we've done before. We're not comfortable with the way we look. Uh, We can't multitask like we can on a a phone. We can't put the phone on mute and just kind of ignore what's going on. We were sort of going to be on the on the screen. So I, I thought, Tom, one of the things we'd go over is if you're going to be on these calls uh, on, a, on a video conference, what are the things you need to do to do them well? And as they said in the uh, the famous movie Sunset Boulevard, all right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. So what I think of some of the things that you might need to do. Well, the first one is just how do you stage a call? So what do you need to be, uh, and I have my own opinions on this, but I'll ask you first, what do you need to think about in terms of the lighting, the room you're in, the background, what you wear, those sorts of things? How do you pay attention to those things? Well, first of all, I think it depends on the context. Um, it depends on the context of the call or the meeting that you're going to be joining. You know, I am, um, if I'm, no offense, Dennis, but if it's just you and me and we're going to be talking, I am not going to dress up as well as I might for uh, for a business meeting or for uh, for something uh, a little bit more uh, more serious. Um, so from from a dress standpoint, I really think it depends on who you're meeting with and, and what kind of image you want to portray. If you were meeting with them in person, how would you dress? And then ask yourself, should I dress the same way? You know, it kind of, it's kind of odd if you're 
on the one hand, it's kind of odd sitting in front of a video camera in a coat and tie uh, where you're just sitting at home doing this. But at the same time, if you're doing a job interview uh, or you're giving an interview to a, a media outlet, you want to look nice. You want to be in a coat and tie. You want to sh- uh, you know, have that professional air. And so think about um, how would you dress if you were there in person and then try to imitate that as far as, uh, as, far as what you were doing on camera. As far as one of the biggest challenges that I have, and, and this is more geographic, Graphical for me than anything else is um, the lighting and and how to make sure that you look appropriate. You know, I'm uh, my office. I, I have uh, my computer. Um, the camera will show the window outside, and, and I have shutters. And there's glare, no matter what kind of day, no whether it's clear day, sunny day, cloudy day. There'll be glare from there, and it'll be hard to see me. And so what I have to do is I have to shut those shutters. I have to turn on the lights, the ceiling lights, so that they could people can see my face. And it's not my preferred. I'd rather have the natural lighting that comes in, but unfortunately, I, I can't do it. And, and what's nice about a lot of these video tools is, is that, or just even the webcam on your computer, is that you can test it out. You can go and take a look and see how you look and what's behind you. You want to make sure, obviously, that, that what's behind you is uh, is appropriate. It's professional. Again, that's going to depend on the context as well, um, un- unless it's kind of a, 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 a backdrop that's going to apply and, and work in any situation. But those are the those are the main things that I think about when I think about how to dress and and the right uh, the right appearance. Dennis, uh, what what are what are your thoughts on that? Is there any difference there? Well, I I do think of it a little bit as a way that to think that I am going to be on TV. And so I pay a lot of attention to lighting when I when I can. Uh, I have looked back at other times that I've done video conferencing or video webinars and the amount of time I spent on lighting and moving lights around, and you know, getting a background that was that was plain, and that I showed up well on, it's it's almost more time than I than I spent doing other types of preparation. So I, I think the video conferencing where it gives you, especially the picture in picture of what you look like, is is can be really helpful, but. You do have to pay attention to the lights because I, I think sometimes you can get the, the shadows under your eyes that can make you not look good or make you look tired or make you look ominous or whatever. And so paying a little attention to that, you know, dressing in a way so you don't look, you know, as pale, for example, or washed out is good. <laughs> and and then, then I also think you, you do need to pay it. I used to hang a sheet behind me, you know. Uh, I went to that extreme. I don't, you know... I was recently on one of these video calls where, in the location somebody was at, they had a, a background of the, you know, overlooking the city at night with all the lights, and it was, you know, it was in the middle of the afternoon. It was a great background, but it was kind of, you know, incongruous because I could see it was a background, and it definitely wasn't the nighttime. But, you know, you can, so you can do some things with, with the background. So. Keeping a playing background, you know, being concerned like if you're, you know, your office is really messy or you have a whiteboard with confidential information on it, you want to pay attention to that, obviously. And so there, there can be some things like that. But I think if you have the sense of that I'm presenting something that feels like I'm on TV, uh, but you know, not as not as intense as that, maybe, but to, but at least give some thought to it and think especially about the lighting. Then I think all of all of that can that can be helpful. 
I guess the other thing, Tom, I always run into is this sense of where I think there's a big difference and why people are reluctant to, to go to video sometimes is that on a traditional conference call, you can multitask like crazy, you know, be on the internet, put the call on mute, just let your attention wander all over the place. And if somebody asks you a question, you're not paying attention, you can just pretend you didn't hear it and ask them to repeat it. But you feel like if you're on video, you're going to be always on and always seen. And I think that makes people nervous and probably with good reason, because I think it is important to remember that uh, people can see you. And Tom, we were talking before we did this recording about the eye rolling issue, which you could definitely do on audio calls, but on video can be a problem. Yeah, I hardly ever do eye rolls on calls anytime. Uh, and and anybody that knows me knows that I'm I'm being sarcastic there. But uh, I you know I think that that what video calling or video conferencing forces you to be is it forces you to be in an in person meeting. It's it's you're it's like you're sitting across the table from them. You need to be in the moment and you need to give them your full attention. Now that said. Good video conferencing tools um, are are going to give you the opportunity to um, not necessarily be always seen or always on. I mean, one of the to me one of the benefits of the Zoom tool that we use for our meeting was that I had the ability, uh, or or the, the the actual attendees had their ability to mute their own lines. And frankly, that was a great idea because uh, some people were using headsets and were breathing quite heavily into the line. It was very difficult to hear what. Other people were saying because the breathing was so so heavy. I could mute them, so I muted them a couple of times to keep them from being quiet. But the the other thing was is that you can also mute your video. You can also turn off the video and and show just a blank screen or your picture when you need to get up and walk away or do something that you don't necessarily want anybody else to do. Now you know from an etiquette standpoint, you don't want to be doing that during a whole meeting. You want to make judicious use of that. For for my purpose, I did it only when we took a break when we took a break i would put it on on a flat screen and then uh, and then came back when it, when the break was over but uh, but having those tools i think makes it easier to um, to get over the the fear or the anxiety or the trepidation you might feel from seeing that always seen and always on any other um, i guess etiquette issues that you think we should talk about dennis well, some of them relate to the always seen and always on part of it. So on some recent video calls I was on, uh, people didn't have good instructions on how to use, uh, in this case, it was equipment more than, than a service. And so I had dialed in, and I could actually see and hear uh, the people in the other room, even though they hadn't connected to me, uh, so they couldn't see and hear me. And so I could hear them, you know, complaining about not knowing how to work it and, and all these these other things where I had to email them to let them know that I could hear them so they didn't say something that would in, embarrass them. So there can be little things like that, little technical things. And then, then I, I think the other thing that I wanted to mention is that uh, that people don't really appreciate how great this technology is. But when you have sort of multiple parties on video, a lot of these services work by show displaying the and they do it really quickly displaying the the video from the person who's actually talking and so it moves around as somebody talks so it's it's voice sensitive or voice activated 
And that's a cool thing. Uh, but in some, I've been in some situations where, because of the, the way that works, it it leaves up the uh, a display in some places of the last person who talked, or may have multiple people. So you may think that you're done talking, and it shifted the video shifted away from you. And in fact, you could still be up for a long time on in another location, just because of the way that that voice activation works. So I, I think when when I think of the etiquette, I, I really do think you you have to say I am on all the time, and I need to to you know think as if people are looking at me all the time. So I, I shouldn't be multitasking unless it looks like I'm taking notes or, or whatever, but uh, and doing some of the things that you do on a typical call. I guess, Tom, I, I mean, there are some, you know, some, uh, some things that can go wrong uh, in these things with technology and the way you do things. But the question I had for you, Tom, is, is this going to be yet another place where we're going to find discoverable electronic data as a result of, of video calls? Oh, well, sure. I mean, anytime that you uh, create a record um, that can be kept and that can be recorded, then um, you're creating a discoverable document. And so, uh, I, you know, the, the one of the questions that came up at, at just our ABA meeting was, hey, there are a couple of people who missed this meeting. Can we record it next time so that uh, so that everybody can can do it? And and I'm happy to record for this. But uh, but if you're meeting for other purposes, if you're meeting with witnesses if you're meeting to discuss strategy, you need to think about the think about it when you record it uh, about whether or not it can be discoverable. Because I think ultimately it's not really any different than any other potential recording that you make, whether that's an email or a memo or anything else. Because you are, uh, you know, you, you're either going to find a way to make it privileged so that it's not uh, discoverable, uh, or else uh, it, it it could possibly become relevant. Yeah. And- I, I just to wrap up time. I, I think this is one of those areas that probably is. It hasn't happened as fast as many people might have expected, but I think there's a certain momentum to it now. And I think this is one of these areas where, uh, you know, a lawyer who becomes really good at doing these video conferences, and, you know, knows how to use the technology, can do it really well, has a good presence, uh, picks effective uses for it, can be and can be really helpful to certain clients because they they you know either eliminate the need for travel or reduce travel costs. This can I, I think become a real advantage, and so you know, as as lawyers look for areas of technology that they might learn or try to be good at, especially for lawyers who feel a little threatened by some computer technologies, this could be one where you say, I'm comfortable with this, and this is something that will help distinguish me from the crowd. Well, and I agree, and I think that um, a minute ago when you were talking about seeing people in the room complaining about how they didn't know how to use the tool, I mean, the, the etiquette there is learn how to use the tool. And I think that uh, the best way to get started is to look at some of the, the free and cheap tools that we talked about, Google Hangouts or Skype, and start having video calls and understand how the technology works. Take Zoom.us out for a spin and see if it works for you and and, and, and just start to, start to do it. That's the... I think the easiest and the best way to become comfortable with the technology as you start to use it. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. 
Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. Well, the hard drive in my wife's desktop computer died recently. I haven't gotten the chance to deal with that yet and that might actually become a topic of of this segment in the in the future when I get that all figured out but we went to Best Buy yesterday to look at Windows laptop computers and frankly I almost gave Tom a call f- from the store for advice I'm I'm starting to suspect that one reason tablets are now selling laptops is that it's really hard to find a laptop that that's just right it isn't too big too heavy too something and I also noticed that many laptops had touch screens or were laptop-tablet combos. And I kept trying them at the store, and I really struggle with the keyboard-touchscreen combination. And I suspect part of that is because you really do have to fold these things over and use it as a tablet. So, Tom, since I didn't call you in person, uh, I thought I'd ask you now, what are, what are the considerations uh, these days when looking at a laptop or these touchscreens or laptop-tablet combos? So for me, I think the considerations, I won't say they're easy. I think that the the high-level considerations are fairly basic, and you need to kind of decide, and that's what I wanted to really cover here, which was I'm still not convinced uh, that a tablet is going to do all the work that you want, unless unless maybe you purchase a Windows Surface. I think that that tablet is just like working on a Windows laptop. Um, it's much more compact. I think what's interesting is that is that Windows is now, or Microsoft, I'm sorry, is now trying to compete. It used to be when the Surface came out, they would be uh, competing with, with the iPad. Well, I think they've gone and become much smarter about it. They're now competing um, with the MacBook and with the, with the Apple laptops rather than with their tablets. And I think that that makes more sense. I think it is makes more sense as a laptop replacement because you're running full versions of the software on those tablets. Um, for me, the, the biggest drawback with the Surface is the price. Um, it's not cheap, but then again, there's a lot of other laptops out there that are um, as expensive as that. So, so for those of you who don't want to spend more, or who don't want the the Windows Surface, to me, there are. A couple of different laptops that you can look at and a couple of things that you can think about. Um, You know, there are certainly desktop replacement laptops that are around, but I think those sort of fall into the the, the category for you, Dennis, of the too big, too heavy. Those are are awfully big because they're designed to be as powerful as your computer. And so you're going to have big screens, you're going to have big hard drives, you're going to have powerful machines that are still in a more portable format. And I think that's the the downside that uh, that you have to accept if you want 
want to have a computer that is as powerful as the computer that you have at your desk. But if size and weight are the problem, if you don't like it, then then why not take a look instead at an ultrabook or or, or an ultra portable? Um, they they you know are providing I think some pretty good good performance. Um, they allow you to run the same kinds of programs I think, to, uh, and they've really improved over the past couple of years since they debuted. I think the one drawback that I would see and why I wouldn't use one is that you're you know because they're small because they often run with uh, solid state drives. The drives are not that big. They are 128 gigabytes or 256 gigabytes, and now you know standard standard on a laptop is is close to a terabyte or more. And um, so if 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 that's an issue, that then an ultra portable might not be right for you. But I guess Dennis, I'm curious about about your your issues with the touchscreen. I'm not sure that I would want necessarily a portable tablet convertible that I could turn into a, a tablet if I wanted to. I, I you know I think Windows 8 is something that a lot of people aren't happy with because the interface was so different from Windows 7. Um, it's made for a touchscreen. It's made you know for people who are comfortable with touchscreens. I was recently actually helping a friend set up a computer, um, uh, both a desktop and a laptop. They both had Windows 8 on it, and I have to say I, it does take some getting used to. But I really sort of took to the touch interface on the laptop and found myself reaching for the screen more often than I was reaching for the the, the keyboard to do things or the, or the mouse to do things. I really liked that. You know, I think I, I'm used to working with the iPad, so it was easy for me to deal with it. Um, what were the you know what were the specific issues for you? And I guess do you have any in, any additional input you'd want for people who might be looking for a, a new laptop or something similar? Yeah, I mean, what was interesting to me, and and you touched on a, a number of these things, is okay. So we were looking for something for my wife, and so as always, I look at these things of what are what are we hiring this computer to do, and and so that that becomes tricky, and for me, that's uh, easier because I really conceive I have this MacBook Air that I love. When I replace it, I'm going to get another one, and I see the laptop as being separate from the tablet. They do two different things for me. So the idea of combining them sort of seems like I get, you know, not the best of both worlds, sort of compromises in each. Uh, but I also noticed that when Colleen looked at uh, some of the the, uh, the Apple laptops, she went right away to put her finger on the screen to do something, and, and it's yeah, not a touch. <laughs> it's not a touch screen. So there is a sense that we get now from the iPhones and the smartphones and the tablets that any screen should be responsive to touch. And so, I and I saw that right away, even though that's not you're not the way I conceive of things because I, I see these as two two separate things. So what I what I felt was that I was doing this weird thing and obviously I'm just at a Best Buy in, in for 15 minutes so it's not like I've gotten used to this but I'm I'm kind of like trying to figure out how to do the mouse and then how to put my fingers on the screen. I'm in this weird position and the arrow is not doing what I like and I tap on the screen and it doesn't do exactly what I want. So I, I think there's a a sort of sort of learning thing and but I did find it really tricky because I I thought that the answer was really going to be to get sort of this basic 15 inch laptop that would cost maybe about $500 that would probably do everything that my wife needed but what I found was that those things are really heavy and so uh, 
that that seemed to be a drawback. So I think you're right. You'd sort of move toward these ultra books or these combo things just for the size and weight. And then you start to think, well, maybe the tablet is the way to go when you really aren't doing all that much. Uh, you know, so it's it's a it's a tricky place, and I sort of see why. Uh, you see the sales trends you see on laptops versus tablets these days because I think the laptops, it's its really hard to know where they fit, especially those gigantic heavy ones with the big screens. Yeah, I totally, I, I agree with that. I um, i think it really comes down, like you say, to what are you hiring this this device to do? And if you don't do a ton of productive work, you know, I, I live my life in the Microsoft Office world and, and it's actually getting easier on an iPad and certainly on the Surface to be able to do something like that. Um, but if you um, don't don't need that much, then maybe the tablet does make sense for you. Um, I, I really, I really, I'm starting to see the, the desktop replacement kind of going away. I think people are tired of the heavy, larger devices and they're going towards the smaller devices. And I think that we're probably going to slowly start to see um, the way that people work when they're out of the office start to change as a result of that because they're going to, I think, because they would prefer to have something lighter and smaller, I think they're going to adapt the way that they use that to, uh, uh, to fit the device that they want to use. Okay, now it's time for our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. So I um, saw an article on a website called The Crew Blog, and actually it appeared on Lifehacker as well, that uh, that was called The Key to Better Work, Email Less and Flow More. And they talk about how um, how much time is spent um, when you are working during the day and an email comes in and alerts you and it distracts you from what you were doing. And it shows that the amount of time, and they, they come into to some stats that say that you spend about 28% of your time checking your email. That translates to 13 hours a week. How do we actually get to be more productive? And they talk about this idea called staying in the flow, finding your flow, that it's kind of a difficult balance because the flow um, is where you feel challenged, um, but not so challenged that you feel anxious about it. It's uh, If there's no challenge, you're bored, you're more likely to get distracted. If you're so challenged because it's so difficult, you're more likely to get anxious, which again leads to distraction. It's finding that, that right flow of feeling challenged in a way that that makes you excited that you can kind of blow through things and eliminating the obstacles to that and setting goals and and then you know figuring out what your progress is. I thought this was an interesting discussion about how to find that flow and hopefully uh, maybe become less distracted by email when you're trying to get work done. Dennis. Well, sadly, uh, in St. Louis, uh, for the past week, we've had this situation in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, which is a a suburb of St. Louis and probably about 15 miles from where I live. Um, that's that's been in the news, been the trending topic on 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 Twitter for a long time, and and we just it's it's been really upsetting to everyone here. We we hope that you know things you know gradually move in, in a good way. Um, there, but as a result of that, you know, sometimes you get asked questions as as a lawyer, or people talk as as friends about uh, you know what goes on in these situations, and uh, you know people tweeting and uh, showing doing video, and 
a lot of times as a lawyer, you just like to know a little bit about what to to talk about that and what some of the rules are. And there have been changes in in uh, you know Supreme Court cases on searches of phones and such. But I think that uh, what, what I found for this week is from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And they have uh, just updated for 2014 what they call the Cell Phone Guide for U.S. Protesters. Okay, so it's a catchy title, but it's a really great summary of, of what the legal issues are and what you can do in, in certain situations and the rights that you have regarding your cell phones, passwords, um, encryption, that sort of thing. And I, I think it's a really useful service uh, to people in general, but also to lawyers, just to give you a little bit of a handle on the types of questions people might ask you uh, in, in situations where the use of cell phones and other technologies may come into play in those in those kinds of settings. So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mall Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Information on how to get in touch with us, as well as links to all the topics we discussed today, is available in our show notes blog at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site. You can get to archives of all our previous podcasts in both places as well. If you have a question you want answered or a topic for an upcoming podcast, please email us at tkmreport at gmail.com or send us a tweet. I'm at Tom Mile and Dennis is at Dennis Kennedy. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. Help us out by telling a couple of your friends and colleagues about this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.